There should have been a collective amen to that video. So, should we say that? Amen. Right. Uh, what an excellent video to remind us of our purpose and what God has called us to do. And of course, many of you are aware that we started a stewardship emphasis last week. Many of you received, hopefully all of you, if you're a church member, you received a packet of information. Hope you read the letter and did not make it into an airplane and throw it around your home. And I hope that you saw the work that was put into that. Just a reminder of where we've been in the past, where we're headed in the future. Last week, some of you calendared it to where you would not be here so that you would miss the first sermon on stewardship. And you're back today, right? So I'm going to preach what I preached last week again this week. No, I'm not, really. But if you remember, we talked about to tithe or, to, uh, or not to tithe. And we summed it up by looking into the Old Testament first. And we talked about Genesis 14, Leviticus 27, Deuteronomy 14, and Malachi 3. And we learned the purpose of the tithe from the Old Testament... And in relation to our God, the tithe was meant to glorify God and recognize that the Lord God Almighty, Himself alone, is the source of all of our blessing. And Abraham learned this by honoring the Lord God when he met Melchizedek. Prior to the law being given, Abraham realized that God alone gives us the victory. All blessings come from Him. Remember, that was pre-law. That was the story of Abraham. And second, in relation to God's people, the purpose of the tithe is to teach us to put our God first. And third, in relation to the nation of Israel, the purpose of the tithe was to ensure that God's work would be fully supplied. And then we moved over uh, to the New Testament after we talked about God, uh, the tithe demonstrating all human blessings come from Him, that he should be first in our lives and that his work should be supplied. We went over to the New Testament and we said, what warrant do we have for preaching and teaching and encouraging the tithe in the New Testament era? Because in the tithe, in the Old Testament, that was Old Covenant, Old Testament. But when you get to the New Testament, it is grace-giving. And the summary of the age of grace is that what was a command in the Old Testament now has become a model in the New What was a percentage in the Old Testament has now become proportionate in the New Testament. What does that mean? The more you're blessed, the more you ought to give. For some of us, a tithe would simply be an excuse not to be generous. Because for some of us, that's just merely pocket change. And you're not being a generous giver by just giving 10%. I know that that doesn't sit well with some of you who are legalists and think you should only give 10%. But read your Bible. Read your Bible and you will find. I challenged you to do that last week. Read your Bible. Just don't take my word for it. Read the Word of God and find out what proportionate giving is. And here's the wonderful thing also. The same promise that God gave us in the book of Malachi. That if we will test Him and try Him, He will open the windows of heaven. When you get over to the New Testament, the Bible says, He that sows sparingly will reap sparingly. He that sows bountifully will who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. We know what the word says. So the same promise that God gave you in the Old Testament is the same one 
he gives us in the New Testament. And we talked about the two extremes we ought to avoid. Avoid the extreme of thinking that once I give 10%, the other 90 is mine. To do whatever I want to. That's not good stewardship, folks, right? That's not good stewardship. Nor, neither should we say, well, 10% is what you have to do and put that burden on someone. I'm not sure that would mesh with the Word of God as well. But I would say that tithing is a tremendous place to start. There's never a reason in the Word of God why we should say that 10% is not a wonderful standard for the people of God. And I don't think anywhere in the Scripture God asked for any less than that. So we learned that last week. It's an effective tool. Today, my emphasis will be more on the fact <clears throat> that you belong to the Lord. If you're saved, you belong to the Lord. And there is a huge difference between allegiance and devotion. Would you all agree with me on that? That's the purpose of this sermon. There's an interesting little phrase that's found in 2 Corinthians 8. That's not where the sermon's coming from. It's coming from Mark chapter 12. Okay? <laughs> but there's an interesting phrase given uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the uh, top-tier uh, mountain peak teachings on giving found anywhere in the Word of God. And the Macedonian churches have been generous and Paul says, this is what we figured out. Why you've been so generous? This is the reason. Because you gave yourself first to the Lord. Now Christian, follower of Christ, your material possessions will not be in line with who God is when you don't belong to the Lord. Right? Everything begins with you giving yourself first to the Lord. And when you give yourself wholeheartedly to Him then everything else will fall in line, even our material possessions. And what a wonderful tidbit of information Paul addresses to the church of Macedonia. You gave yourself first to the Lord, and then you took part in this offering. So that's where it all begins. And I want to let that phrase and let that thought sink into your mind this morning that you belong to the Lord. And let's talk about allegiance versus devotion out of Mark chapter 12. There's an old song that we don't hear it much anymore, but the words go something like this. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. If heaven's not my home, oh Lord. Now you're dating yourself if you know the song, right? Because the young people are like, what is this? Well, it's a song that we don't hear much anymore, but the fact of the matter is Christians really don't understand this song or this principle anymore, and that's the fact that there is a dual dynamic going on in the life of a believer. And the dual dynamic is this. You're a citizen of this earth, but ultimately you are a citizen of heaven. And there's this dual dynamic. And it's not always easy to live in both kingdoms, especially when one kingdom of the earth contradicts mightily the kingdom of heaven. And we're seeing this in our election process, aren't we? We're seeing this across the board in the country. We didn't get here overnight. We saw the slide coming and the dual dynamic of believers going against the tide. You know, it takes any old fish, any old dead fish can float with the current. But it takes somebody alive to go against the current. And so, as believers, we know that our values drawn from the Word of God, they're, they're countercultural to the ones of this world. 
But we still live here. For example, in John 17, in the Lord's, that is really the Lord's prayer, by the way. Not the model prayer, our Father which in heaven, who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's a model prayer. That's not the Lord's prayer, no matter what your coach has told you in ball. Okay? The Lord's prayer is John 17. And in that prayer, he says, God, Father, they're in the world. Would you keep them in the world? But they belong to you. So there was always this dynamic. First John says, how do you, you're, you're in the world, but you're not of the world. How can you be in the world, but not of it? Should I, as a Christian, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, as my king, should I obey the government? This question is much easier because we live in a democracy. And as long as the winds are blowing in our direction, we're okay with that democracy, right? And, but what if you were in a total, totalitarian context? What if you were under a tyrannical dictatorship? What would be the call upon your life even then? Much like the way that Paul lived and Peter lived under Nero. How would you balance that? Well, let's suppose even in our democracy, we are told that we have to violate the Word of God or our conscience because the government tells us. These are really, really important issues. And the reality all comes down to allegiance versus devotion. It all comes down to who we belong to. Even your giving to the Lord comes down to the very rudimentary issue of who you belong to and who's your God. Y'all do realize that, don't you folks? It all hinges upon it. So in Mark chapter 12, we have something interesting going on. Remember, Mark is the most concise presentation of the life and times of Jesus Christ. It is a book of action. And that's why many people think that Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke, and then finally John. That would be called Markan priority. Some people believe in Matthean priority, that Matthew was written first. But because Mark is the shortest... And most concise, hard-hitting action. And it's all about the life and times of Jesus Christ. If you want the most concise rendering of his life, who he is and what he accomplished, you'll find that in the book of Mark. And so, with that in consideration, it's, so, it's, it's short, it's all about action. And as a matter of fact, in Mark eleven twenty, all the way through thirteen thirty-seven is one day in the life of Christ. He's going to have five confrontations with the religious leaders and the Herodians in that span of time. And if you remember, in 11, 27 through 33, they questioned the Lord's authority. The Sanhedrin does that. In chapter 12, 13 through 17, the question is about paying taxes, rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's. And this is the Pharisees and the Herodians in this dilemma. And then, of course... Chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, the Sadducees ask him about the resurrection. And we know that the Sadducees did not believe in a bodily resurrection. When you get to 12, 28 through 35, he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Y'all awake this morning? Which is the greatest commandment? That's what he's asked. And finally, there's a question that the Son of God poses himself about who he is is in his identity. What we're going to read today, the Bible uh, scholars call this the great debate. It's called the great debate, this particular section. Listen to it. Chapter 12. Let's pick up in verse 12. This is right after he's cleansed the temple 
and they're ticked off. He gives a parable, and guess who the parable points to? The Pharisees. So they're not real happy about what Jesus said. Everybody knows that this parable was about the Pharisees, and they were really ticked off, and here's what happens. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. In other words, they got the message, right? And the Bible says, so they left him and went away, but they were not done. Right? Here's the deal. Verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose image or likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Again, this was a great debate, but in my opinion, it wasn't that great. You know why? It's never a good idea when you debate Jesus. And they come to him in this debate, and they're not properly armed for this debate. And I guess we could say right up front, it's never a good thing to argue with the Son of God. It's never a good thing to argue with the Scriptures. And Jesus is going to debate the Herodians and religious leaders, and He's going to leave them in the dust. It's a battle of the wits, but they come and show up unarmed, and the Lord Jesus is going to thoroughly wipe them out. Again, remember the context. They're humiliated. They're embarrassed because of the parable. They go back and get their team together, and they send the Pharisees and the Herodians, and their goal is to trap Him to get him to align himself with Rome or to devalue Roman allegiance or devalue their allegiance to God, to to the Lord God. That's what he's trying to do. But it was a dumb thing. They lose the debate. Did y'all notice that the Pharisees and the Herodians come together? We would appear that they're bosom buddies, but they hate each other. The Pharisees are the conservative people and the Herodians are the liberals. And they thoroughly hated one another. But hate is second only to love, right? And so here are the Pharisees and the Herodians coming together to try to trip Christ up because there was something they hated more than each other. They hated the Lord Jesus Christ. And church family, you know why they hated Him? Because when Jesus shows up on the scene, it's going to change your agenda. And the Pharisees and the Herodians both had their agendas. You know, it's interesting that when Jesus shows up and the people of God begin to submit to Him in the church, our agendas go out the window. Amen? Something happens when we begin to sense the presence of the Lord and we submit ourselves to Him. That's what happens in church life. And one thing you need to know, I've been here three months, I may have earned this right to say this to you. If I haven't earned the right to say this to you, I'm going to say it anyway. You need to learn... How to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because that's what Jesus makes you. Very uncomfortable. As a matter of fact, He'll mess your life up. And He'll mess it up for the right reason. 
Hello? Right? So the church, if we're going to be on mission for Christ, if we're going to do what He wants us to do, we're going to be obedient to Him, you need to learn to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Because that's our problem right now. We're way too comfortable. That's what's wrong with Christianity in America, period. We're way too comfortable. And we have a radical Savior who's nothing like being comfortable, right? As a matter of fact, He's going to change you and challenge you on every area. And when He shows up that day, and they show up unarmed, and they're challenging Him, it's because He is a challenge to them. He, he challenges them to the core of their being because He's the Lord God. And their agendas are getting set aside. The Pharisees' religious agenda was pushed to the side. And the Herodians' political agenda wasn't going to work if Jesus is the king. Right? And so, verse 14, they kiss up a little bit. We know you're a great preacher. We know that you're a good teacher. You don't regard any person. As a matter of fact, you don't care what anybody thinks. You teach the truth all the time. Boy, their lips are just dripping with flattery. And they're trying to disarm him, right? Ironically, everything they said about him is true. He's going to speak the truth. He's going to say it every time. And he's not going to worry about what other people have to say. Now watch what happens. Here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now to understand this, you've got to know what, what they're thinking, what they're trying to do. They think they have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. He's caught between two things, and he's no, there's no way possible that he can win. Whatever he says is going to, in their opinion, evade one thing or the other. If he says, well, pay taxes to people, the Jews are going to brand him as a collaborationist. You're just, you're just joining in with Rome. And if he says, well, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they're going to brand him as an insurrectionist. So either way you go here, they're trying to trip him up because Rome did not, although they did tolerate religious diversity, if you mess with the government, they rule with an iron fist. This is the way Rome was, so they waited for the response. They were licking their chops. They could not wait until Jesus responded responded to this, there was no possible way of escape. What a delicious prospect. They finally have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. The early church, of, of course, are going to, we're going to use this phrase over and over and over, what he's going to say, but their eyes are on him. There's a collective holding of the breath. He exposes their hypocrisy real quickly. He says to them, I know what you're doing. As a matter of fact, this word hypocrisy is the same one used of Satan in the temptation in the wilderness. Same Greek word. He knows what they're trying to do. They're trying to get him off his mission. And his mission was to die for you and me. And appease the wrath of the Father, ultimately, was his goal. They wanted to get him off his mission. And Jesus says these words. You remember them? Remember the words? Chapter 12. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay them or not? Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought it, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. What do we know about this particular coin? It weighed 3.8 grams. It was actual, actually one day's payment for a working slave. This is what they were giving, this one small silver coin weighing 3.8 grams. It was also the required tax of a day's wage or of a lifetime wage, a yearly wage, for a typical Israelite 
laborer. He does not even have one. Jesus does not even have a denarius. As a matter of fact, he asked, bring me one. And he said, whose image is on it? And what is the inscription? One side bore the head of Caesar. And on the other side, it had the inscription of the high priest. So in this day, it would have read in the image, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. And the other side would have been the image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, with the words Pontifex Maximus, meaning high priest. Now to a Jew, folks, that was double idolatry. A man claiming to be God and a woman, woman claiming to be the high priest. Now that, that really messed up the Jewish mind big time. So again, it was the amount paid into the Roman treasury by all adult men and women just for the privilege of living in Rome and having your existence under their leadership. It could only be paid with this particular coin. And again, listen to his astounding answer. It is universally the, most, the single most influential political statement ever made in the history of the world. Y'all do realize that, right? As a matter of fact, so many things in our Constitution and everything about it was built upon separation of church and state built upon this particular principle. Now, there are two implications with this this morning. Render unto Caesar that which is Caesar. Render unto God's that which is God's. Two implications. Here's the first one. Believers owe an allegiance to the state as long as you can. Right? Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. He says whose image is on the coin. As a matter of fact, folks, remember, you could not even bring this particular coin into the temple. You had to turn it in and exchange it and get a, another coin. Why? Because they were not going to take a coin with the image of Caesar on it. It wasn't going to happen. So you had to exchange it. Roman coins belonged to Caesar. You see how they set themselves up for this one. Okay, render unto Caesar. Again, the early church, chiefly the Apostle Paul, is going to take this statement. He's going to amplify it. And we're going to really get what's called the doctrine of how Christians ought to live in reference to the government or state or wherever you live as a citizen on earth. Romans chapter 13. Would you flip there for a moment? We've got to pick up speed. For me to get done, you've got to listen fast. All right? Chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there's no authority except from God. Folks, you hear that? And that's kind of hard to swallow sometimes, isn't it? But when you go over to Proverbs 20, it says the heart of a king is like a river. And God turns it wherever he wills. Doesn't matter who the king is, God's bigger. And he can turn even a pagan king's heart wherever he wants to. So folks, we need to know today that we belong ultimately to God and he's in control. Right? And so in Romans 13, it says that they have authority and they're given that authority from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Well, that's convicting, isn't it? Of why God put government there. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, 
but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Some of you hate to hear that, don't you? Because of this, some of you pay tax. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pray to all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Well, we need to hear this right up on the heels of an election, don't we? And this is not the kind of preaching we want to hear. You see, I'm shooting you with a double barrel. We are talking about stewardship, but you also have an obligation as a citizen of the United States. And in short, to summarize this, here's what Paul says. We need to obey the laws. The speed limits are put there for a reason, amen, or oh me. Well, just think about this. A Christian cheat is an oxymoron. I mean, the laws are put there for a particular reason. We owe an allegiance to the state. And even when it comes to paying your taxes. I read a story recently about a person who sent a letter to the IRS because he felt guilty. He said, I'm a Christian and I feel guilty about cheating on my taxes. And he enclosed a check for $175. And he said this, and I quote, I have cheated on my taxes and I feel guilty about it. Then he closed the letter with this statement. If this doesn't satisfy my conscience, I might send the rest of the money I owe you. (laughs) Some of you are guilty, guilty, guilty when it comes to that, right? You are to obey the laws and you are to pay taxes as a citizen of this world. You don't have an out there. God tells you to render. And Paul amplifies that to help us understand what that means. Not only do you obey the laws, but you also have to honor the officials. You might say, well, they didn't know we were going to have potentially Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama. They didn't know. When Paul said this, he was just out of step. I mean, this is only culturally relative. Folks, do you know who Nero was? Has anybody ever studied at all what kind of man this was that Paul was under? We don't understand how comfortable and how we have it in our country even to this day. You have it like no other country in the history of the world has ever had it. No one has ever had it like you do and like I do. Everybody else suffered persecution and still to this day suffer persecution because of the name of Jesus. But we're living in a country where there is at least at this particular moment religious toleration in most ways, but this was a bad little dude. Nero, as a matter of fact, he was a combination of Hitler and Saddam Hussein all rolled up into one. And Paul says, you even honor that position. Well, that's tough. That's tough, isn't it? You honor the position the person is in. I I, I know we're not talking about honoring the person's character. We're talking about the position. Why? Because for some reason, unknown to us, God put him there. God allowed him to be there. And folks, the history of our country is that we usually get the president we deserve. Go ahead and chew on that one for a few minutes. He goes one step further. It's one thing to obey and to honor, but what about praying for them? Wow. First Timothy, you ought to pray for those who are over you. Some of you are saying, you know what, I've had enough of this from this preacher. Well, I'm going to move on from it, okay? You owe, as a believer, allegiance to the state that you live in. Now, notice what I said, as long as you can. 
by those three things. Doing that before the Lord. But here's the other implication. Believers belong to God as long as you live. You belong to God. And this is exactly what the Lord God said. This is exactly what Jesus said. Rendering to Caesars those things that are Caesars. But to God, the things that are God's. Think about this for a moment. What made the, the, the denarius belong to Caesar? It was the image on the coin and the inscription on the back. In the mind of a Hebrew of that day, when you began to talk about the image on the coin, they would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. The Hebrew people, above all people, made a huge deal about the fact that they were made in the image of God. The Bible says He created them male and female. The Bible says in His image God created them male and female. In His image He made them. And much has been written in our lifetime and before about what it means to be made in the image of God. Perhaps more than anything it's awareness of being. Maybe it's, it is multifaceted. Perhaps it's the issue of right and wrong. That you just... You understand this, that there's some things that are right, some things that are wrong. There is perhaps the greatest truth in all of this is God made you redeemable. And then people start talking about, well, think about this. God made you in such a way that you can have a relationship with Him, which is absolutely amazing. It's, it's really multifaceted, and I have to go into a lot of theological depth to tell you what all the nuances of that are. But you were made in the image of God. And in one statement, the Lord Jesus Christ put Caesar in his place, and he also placed God where he rightfully belongs to be in your life. You belong to God. Now, folks, think about this for a moment. In creation, even if you never come to know Jesus as your Lord, you were still made by God. You were still made in His image. That ability to be rational and to be a thinker and to have a relationship with Him. To make you in such a way that you are not like an animal, but you are made redeemable. And I know body, soul, and spirit, all those things we could talk about, but the fact, are you a, a dichotomy or a trichotomy, I think that's irrelevant to our discussion. But what's really, really important is that you belong to God and that supersedes and takes precedence over everything else in life. You belong to God, therefore you render to God what belongs to Him. In other words, when we deal with the issue of allegiance versus devotion, they're not the same thing, folks. They're not on equal grounds. For instance, Acts chapter 4, 19-20, Peter and John say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you decide, for we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. In other words, we're going to keep preaching even if you put us in jail. So as long as you can, you obey and give allegiance to the state. But there may come a day when you can't do that and your allegiance is going to take a back seat to your devotion to God. And that's what's going on in this particular text of Scripture. And again, Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than than men. They don't mean the same thing, folks. They, they don't exist on the same level. We have a duty to the government, 
But we have an even greater duty to the God that we belong to. Why? Because He created us and He redeemed us. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do everything to God's glory. Sometimes we forget that. Have you ever been in a service in the church in the month of July and wondered who it is we really worship? Especially if it's around the 4th of July. It's kind of quiet in here. Missourians don't like big government, do we? For good reason, right? But we are patriotic and we think about these things. But have you ever got the sneaking suspicion that we might have crossed the line sometimes in worshiping a flag more than the Savior? Hello! Yes, folks, it's very easy for us to do that. As a matter of fact, even in our worship we can do that. I had to catch myself when we were singing, I love you, Jesus. You know, there's only about one time in Hebrew where we're told, even in a psalm, to say, I love you, Lord. As a matter of fact, they took that seriously in the Old Testament. They wouldn't even write those words because they knew what that meant. It means that if you say you love God, that means your whole life is surrendered in obedience to Him. And that's why it says in Hebrews 90, uh, Psalm 95, Sing to the Lord. Sing songs to the Lord. But don't harden your heart like those in the wilderness. Folks, you can be so guilty of loving, loving God. And you don't even put Him as the object of your love. Why? Because if you're not obeying God in your life, then you've never worshipped Him to begin with. There is no such thing as true worship without it issuing forth in your life in the area of obedience. Is this making sense? Folks, this is what's killing churches in America. We think that our worship, our loving God is what it's all about. Let me tell you, you can only love Him because He loved you first. We love Him because he loved, he loved us first. And folks, when it comes to obedience to Him, that's the true ticket. That's the true testimony of what a church is doing if we're really loving Him. So I heard a preacher say one time, I knew we were in trouble when the people in the church sang God bless America with more passion than they sang Amazing Grace. God forbid that as the people of God, we would ever sing with more passion, God bless America, then we would, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There ought to be no comparison between those. Yes, there's allegiance and patriotism. I like our flag. I like the state flags. Whatever flag you're going to fly, patriotism is a great thing. But I'm telling you, you belong to God if you're saved today. You belong to Him. Let's, let's make this practical. What it means is you owe an allegiance to the state until up to the point which the state asks you to do something unconscionable to your faith against the Word of God. Then your devotion will take precedence over your allegiance. In other words, devotion to our God takes precedence over allegiance. Here are some examples. In certain countries today, we won't name which one it is, you probably know, when you get pregnant by law after your first child, you must have an abortion. Can you imagine living under those circumstances? As a born-again believer in a foreign country, you give birth to a child or you're pregnant and you know full well to, that to obey the government, you've got to give up that child in abortion. I'm keeping that child. Right? We're gonna, our allegiance to our country takes back seat to our devotion to the king. Right? 
And, and that's what people are living under in this world that we're in. I'm a preacher. And there's going to come a time, I'm telling you, it's going to happen, when they're going to force ministers to perform gay marriages. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach wherever I can preach. And if I go to jail, I'm going to go to jail. But I'm not going to perform a same-sex marriage. Right? So our devotion trumps allegiance. Our devotion to our God takes precedence over all things. How about your job? You owe an allegiance to your employer. Is that right? I could teach you that out of 1 Peter, but I'm not going to take the time to do it. You owe that allegiance. But what if he asks you to do something unethical? Your devotion to God must take precedence over your allegiance, even to your boss or your employer, when they ask you to do something wrong. This is getting down to the nitty-gritty, isn't it? Think about this, folks. You may be a citizen of this world, but you're a child of God. And you belong to God. You're, cre- you're actually a threefold child of God. You're created in His image. You've been purchased by the Son. And you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. You belong to the Lord. I don't have time to get into this. But let me put it to you this way. One of the most radical concepts you will ever come across in your life the most radical concept that will ever enter your mind is that you belong to God. You're in Christ Jesus. And folks, that's diametrically opposed to everybody else in this world that does not know Christ. Everyone else believes that this life we're living is our life. But as a believer, as a Christian, your life is hidden in Him. Your life is His life. And so, as a devoted follower of Jesus, I will say yes to obeying the government. Yes to paying taxes to Caesar. But I'm going to say no when they ask us to disobey the word of God or to worship any man. That's not going to happen. Independence Day for the Christian is not marked by a flag. Our independence is marked by an empty tomb. And a cross that stood on the hill in Golgotha. That's our independence. Amen? Our independence was bought for us at a great price. A supreme sacrifice. And so we belong to God. And here's something radical. When you wake up tomorrow morning, I want you to do something a little different. I want you to look in the mirror. Instead of making yourself look good for the day, the first thought I want you to think about is, God, you don't, I don't belong to me. I belong to you. I want you to take my life. I belong to you. Use my life for your glory. Now listen, folks. I know this was... More than just a giving sermon. And it's for a purpose. Because ultimately, what happens for the kingdom is an investment versus an expenditure. And folks, you got to believe at this church that we're doing more than just making or giving an expenditure. We're making an investment for eternity. You say, well, I don't understand that. Well, did you watch the video? This is more than just a building here, Right? This is more than just adding space. There's there's the purpose of glorifying God. There's the mission of making disciples. That's what we're here for, folks. And if that makes you uncomfortable, it's going to get a whole lot more uncomfortable around here because that's what we're here for. We have to obey the Word of God. You know the difference between an investment and an expenditure? You're smart people. Well, the men in this church, we like to... And we like to do expenditure sometime, don't we? If you buy a set of golf clubs, that's an expenditure. Those suckers will not be worth tomorrow what they were worth when you paid for them at Bass Pro. No matter how you mark that up, that's an expenditure. 
Now, ladies, I'm going to help you out here. If you go buy gold today, they say that's an investment. So, men, go buy your wife some gold, diamond or something like that, because that's more of an investment. Look, folks, when it comes to God's kingdom, you're making an investment. You're laying up treasures in heaven where moth and dust and rust doesn't corrupt it because we're doing it for God's glory and for His purpose. So that's my encouragement. And as I, as I end this sermon, I said last Sunday night, not everybody was here and that's okay, as your shepherd, my goal is not to drive you, but to lead you. A good shepherd leads the sheep. He doesn't drive them. And when it comes to a stewardship campaign, this is not my favorite thing to do uh, because it puts a pastor in a precarious situation but here's what I do know God has given me the right responsibility to lead you and if I don't tell you the truth I'm not leading you correctly folks not only you belong to God but God owns your finances every bit of it all of it belongs to him and my my encouragement to you through this process once you've got your information you know we're going to do this one day gift on the 6th Whatever God leads you to give on one day. And then there's a three-year pledge of what you're going to give monthly for the next three years. I said last Sunday night, I didn't ask my wife about this. Didn't get permission from the boss. <clears throat> Not the boss. Well, you know. What's it you said the other day? Uh, you're the spiritual leader of your home, but your wife is the neck in the home. So you just turn wherever she says turn to, right? <laughs> but I didn't talk to Natalie about this. But I, we're going to commit $500 for that one-day gift to start it all off. And then we're going to commit $3,600 over the next three years. Folks, if we just did that as a church family, let's just take 200 families. And we all gave $500 on the first day. You know that's $100,000? If we just do $100 a month, 200 families, that's close to $750,000 over three years. We can do it! Right? So that this debt is gone. And my vision is... Get rid of the physical expenditures. Get unchained from those things. They're not bad. It's not bad to have a building like this. You, you can be over the top in a lot of things. But I don't think this church has been that way. I think God has blessed the leadership of this church enough to have some sense that you don't build elaborate things. You don't have to go crazy. You can be so tied up in the physical that you miss the missional. Right? So my encouragement to you as your pastor is to obey the Lord through this. Don't do it begrudgingly. Y'all remember that verse? 2 Corinthians 9, 5, and 6. He that sows sparingly, reap. But then it goes down to say, give, give, not begrudgingly or out of compulsion, but be a cheerful giver. You'd be a whole lot better off to give less cheerfully than to try to give a whole lot. And, and somebody last week got confused when I said, squeeze a buffalo off a nickel. Because the buffalo's not on the nickel anymore, is it? I don't know. But when I was growing up, that's a good principle. We'd squeeze that thing and we'd give it begrudgingly. God knows your heart. He's the one that knows why you give it. And here's the deal. The most important thing is that God gave us the Son of God. To save your soul, right? And all of our giving is a response of that. And that's what we're going to see next week. Let's pray. God, you're good to us, Father. And Lord, perhaps in the preaching, Lord... Uh, maybe there's someone in here that thought about the fact that today I don't belong to God. And Lord, your word reminds us that there's only one way we can belong to you and have you as our Father. And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you are the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to you except through Jesus. 
Father, I pray that for that individual you would touch their hearts. Father, for believers today, we do owe an allegiance to the state, but we also belong to you. And devotion takes precedence over allegiance. God, help us to live that way, not just in our finances. Lord, help us to live that way in our obedience and our commitment. Lord, to our service in this church family, to loving one another above ourselves. So many things, Lord, as my leadership in this church, God, help me first and foremost to remember that I belong to you. I've got to please you. Lord, help us today to do this. And Father, would you lead us in this time of invitation? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.